The scientific revolution starts now. My name is Lee Min. Um, I got to my uh, PhD at University of Michigan as an anthropological archaeologist. Uh, I was born in China. I spent the first 20 years there, and I have been interested in archaeology since I was a child. Uh, so I went to uh, Canada for my uh, BA and MA in anthropology and has been doing this uh, all my life. Uh, so um, I have been teaching at UCLA uh, for the last uh, 15 years. Yes. And what are the topics that you specialize in in archaeology? Ah, yes. I'm interested in state formation in early China and uh, uh, early modern trade as well. So in chronological order, that will be third millennium BC the transition from Neolithic to Bronze Age, and also uh, 16th, 17th century. So that's the early modern period. Those are pretty f far separated from each other. Do you, do you draw lines between them, or do you see them as completely different spheres of study? That's a good question. Um, indeed, both of them deal with a central question. That's the kind of globalization how the, the world coming together, connecting different pieces. In terms of early China, the transition uh, to Bronze Age in late third millennium BC involves uh, expanded connections with Bronze Age societies in with the rest of Eurasia, which we will talk about that today. And in early modern period is basically an expansion of uh, Asianic trade network which already flourished in the third century, uh, fourth century, uh, for, sorry, in the 13th and 14th century AD. And then with the um, inauguration of Manila Galleon, uh, the, the new world silver uh, was tra transported, shipped to uh, Philippines, and then uh, went into China. So that's when early globalization started in the late 1500s. So both of them share similar quality, that is expanded interactions, how that transform the society, especially in Chinese society. Hmm. Do you have a sense for what the catalyst was for the initiation of the Bronze Age in China or even in the world in general? Like, What, what was the change that happened? Because oftentimes when you hear about the inception of metallurgy, it's just one sentence is given to it. And they had metallurgy, but that must have been a huge transformational event in society, like the birth of the internet or something. Do you, do you have a sense of what caused that to be possible? Yes. This is a very good question, as metallurgy has been with humanity for seven uh, more thousand years. So it is a very old technology in, let's say, Southern Europe, Mesopotamia. And often people associate technology, uh, the metallurgy as a technology con with connection with urbanization, with state formation, rise of civilization, complex society, like what V. Gordon Child has proposed. You know, he has a 
early um, Neolithic revolution. And that is inaugurated by farming, it's the beginning of farming, it's almost 10,000 years ago. And then a urban revolution, that is the rise of cities. And metallurgy plays a major role in that because metallurgy involves full-time specialization, often in that way. And then a city is the place where it allows people adopting different kinds of trade, where farmers and surplus can support professional artisans. But... Um, the picture is more fuzzy. As you know, different part of the society has different access. Like in Eurasian steppes, they have metallurgy without cities, without full specialization. And in China, metallurgy is rather late arrival. So that's uh, late third millennium BC, where the expanding interaction with North Asia, with Central Asia, brought the Neolithic communities in China into contact with herders, hunter-gatherers, fishing folks, and who have metallurgy but do not have cities hmm. or do not have very complex social structure. So in, in a way that is not tech metallurgy triggered the rise of the cities it is it is a later arrival but this arrival come with other technologies like herding sheep and cattle wheat agriculture as a contribution to the millet farming and rice farming in east asia so you basically have a neolithic society has been going on for 10000 years and then metallurgy as a recent import which contributed to the transformation of chinese society that contributed to the rise age of a bronze age society and early dynasties you said that the metallurgy was present in some of the non-urban peoples yes and how were they able to pull off metallurgy and mining and things like this without specialized roles? Or was it like there was a tribe somewhere that did all of the, the mining and traded it to the other tribes? Or, you know, was there a, prim a more primitive version of the city that did have some specialization where cities were, small villages were collaborating? Like, what does that look like to be producing metallurgy when you're not a city? Yes. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you can find a good example of that in Middle Bronze Age Eurasian steppes in the region uh, south of Eurus Mountain. So that around uh, 2200 BC to 2000 BC, that's the period contemporaneous with what we're dealing with today, where the so-called Shintashta culture of Middle Bronze Age steppes, they have these large settlement uh, where the circular is almost like uh, that special kind of architecture in southwestern chi southeastern China hmm. where you have very communal dwellings almost apartment each hmm. one connected together in a circular building and each household have a room and within that household there are furnace and a well 
which means the knowledge of metallurgy are fairly, um, the community have fairly egalitarian access to this technology. So it's not specialized. Everyone can do it. And uh, these are the, the same folks that uh, invented light spoke chariots. So it could be used for warfare. It could be used for expanded you know, mobility, communication. And in Southern Europe, uh, there are a great Southern steppes. Uh, there, there are great uh, mining regions as well in Southern Europe's mountain. And so trade would be something happening in metal ore. And um, it's like you imagine there's some tribe or village that's camped out near the mine that's selling the raw materials down to the plains or something like that? Yes, yes. I think the mine is called Kogale, and there are massive mining deposits there. And mm -hmm. the, where the the piles of uh, bone tools are like mountains, bone tools. Um, but no single tribe seemed to have monopolized it. So probably these communities make uh, a seasonal visit to these places and acquire this metal ore. So these products are, are then traded across Eurasian steppes. And so the products the, that are in the ancient Chinese cities at the beginning of the third millennium are made from the ore that is mined from the southern Eurasian steppes, like in the in the Georgian plateau, or or where? No, um, the technology come from that direction, but the mining could take place um, along the Chinese northern borders. I see. Uh, especially, see, um, like Mongolia, southern part of Mongolia Plateau. And then there are mining activities along the Hershey Corridor. So that will be the northern uh, edges of the Tibetan Plateau. So uh, if you look at the satellite images, you see these uh, along the northern edge of Plateau. The Tibetan Plateau is the Chilean mountains, and then there's a whole chain of oases that's irrigated with the uh, glaciers come from the plateau. And those areas are the first place where metallurgy started to show up. So uh, mining activities uh, take place in those regions as well. How far back do those go? Um, these will be late third millennium okay so, so it was still pretty re pretty close to the bronze age when metallurgy showed up even in its nascent form yes uh so in terms of uh dating as i said 2200 to 2000 bc that's middle bronze age in your region steps and then 2000 bc that's the beginning of their late Bronze Age, this uh, technology called Andrew Novel Horizon. So basically regional cultures all merged together into this continuous technological complex called Andrew Novel. So is this middle Bronze Age, the last quarter millennium of the third millennium BC, is the critical period. That's when uh, Chinese mining activities, uh, smelting activities start to take place. That's why uh, very early forms of Chinese Bronze Age 
uh, tools or, or jewelry look like your agents that ones. Mm. So it takes a little bit of time to develop their own style, basically? Uh, that's, again, a very intriguing uh, observation. That is, right from the beginning, something interesting is happening. People experimenting something very new and was never seen on the steps. That is, if you look at the steps technology, uh, they primarily produce tools and weapon, okay, especially uh, spare. Those are uh, useful people to know. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, pastoral communities, uh, they, they're very efficient. Um, they, they produce something that's very close to them. You would imagine these things will be the most uh, convenient for the Chinese society to pick up. But not necessarily when you look at these great centers like Shimao and Taosu, they are using this technology to make something new, something experimental and something never seen before. For example, uh, in Taosu, that's uh, uh, a prehistorical city, it's about three square kilometers south of Shimao. You have Copper Bell, which is the first metal acoustic musical instrument, and you have never seen it elsewhere. And the, but the technology is the same as you, you make tools and weapons, bivalve casting, two pieces of mold, and a suspended core in the middle. So it's the same uh, technology that you would make a spare with a, with a socket handle. Uh, and then you have a toad, copper toad. That's something that's often associated with shamanistic rituals because of the hallucinogenic property of the poison coming from the toad. Licking the toad. Pardon? Licking the toad. It's it's kind of a joke, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yes. That's not a joke. The, the, the Mayans <laughs> and other shamanistic societies uh, indeed um, do that. And then you have uh, copper discs that was merged with glued to jade discs. So jade discs is something originally very important in Chinese Neolithic society. And you can see the new material is being merged with existing traditions. And then these warriors are wearing them on their arms. So there are a lot of experiments uh, taking place against the backdrop of extraordinary changes in um, Chinese Neolithic society uh, due to the climatic change around 4.2. Uh, that's 4.2K event. So that's about 4,200 um, years ago. So basically, that change, that climate change, kicked in uh, more mobility because it's getting drier. Uh, there's more uh, herding activities, which expand the range of human activity on your region steps. And also, that's the time when West and the Middle Asia, their bronze technology flourish, especially Bronze Age cities. So there's more demand on raw materials like tin and copper. Both drought and expanding Bronze Age urban economy 
contributing to increased mobility across your original steps. Before we get too far into the things that happen after this technological transfer, I want to get a sense of what Neolithic society in China looked like before the technology arrived and before they started to integrate metallurgy. And I know that that's kind of a, that's a big question because obviously there's not a single illustration of that but roughly speaking these are these are eras that are defined by shared characteristics yes can i just add something too because i want to go back even further than that okay okay and i want to make sure that we talk about because you mentioned jade and i know jade is a big player in the early mesoamerican yes culture as well and you know we found out about your work through this i think it was a national geographic piece that had this very mesoamerican looking uh, facade on one of the buildings. So I want to make sure that we talk about that too along the way before we get too far into history. If you are enjoying our podcast today, consider giving a couple dollars over at patreon.com. You can join in the close-knit circle that we have going there. We meet together once a week and brainstorm how to make this podcast better. And it's a great place for people to network with one another too. So consider that consider marking off next april 6th and 7th we're gonna be having our first conference in austin texas to coincide with the totality of eclipse which is passing very nearby if you don't have any money to give right now maybe just come over to discord give us your ideas suggest better and better guests make sure to leave a comment down below and share the podcast with somebody that's the best way to support what we're doing here otherwise enjoy the conversation with Lehman. Does Shimao bridge the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, or does it begin after the transition to the Bronze Age in China? It bridged. Okay. So, so I, I, will, I will answer your question and then put this Shimao in context. So before the transition to Bronze Age, or you know, getting into contact with metal-using communities of uh, Northern Eurasia and Central Asia, what you have uh, in Neolithic societies uh, are regional trajectories. Parallel trajectories has been going on for multiple millennia since early agriculture uh, started around 10,000 years ago. So by 5,000 years ago, you already can see very distinctive regional traditions each have several thousand years of evolution behind it. And then you can see some distinctive characteristics. And then you can also see um, sustained interactions among these trajectories. And also see some uh, forms, like iconic forms that start to be shared through these interactions. So um, late Professor Casey Chong of Harvard, uh, he used the term prehistorical Chinese interaction sphere, which means you have a, a kind of network of connections at a scale of a continent where you know different trajectories led to different social forms. And it's on the coast, what you see is a very early emphasis on individual achievement. 
that is manifested in feasting remains, very sophisticated uh, alcohol production technology using rice for fermentation. And then you see these elite tombs that's emphasizing uh, military ethos, many, many weapons, battle axes, placed with these elite warriors, and then many alcohol vessels focused on individual consumption. And then you have uh, pig uh, skulls, pig mandibles. And then it seems like the funeral, when it takes place, many warriors would participate. And they will have the last drink, and they will all place their weapons you know, in honor of the dead. So this focus on individuals is really important. And the paramount center of these coastal development is the city called Liangzhou, which is in the suburb of Hangzhou today. So at on the east coast near Shanghai, so it's a, near the, the delta of Yangtze River, where this massive city, it's, it looks similar to the Native American city of Cahokia. They, they, they're thousands of years apart, but structurally they're very similar. Many, many earthen mounds and many tombs for the warrior elite. And these tombs usually furnished with jade, and jade, especially uh, jade discs, and then jade cylinder. Some of them are very tall. And these jade forms, uh, later, in late Bronze Age ritual texts are described as used for different ritual purpose. They, they, they are sampled in the same set, and the discs is to pay homage to heaven, and the cylinder is to pay homage to earth. But those texts are written like 2,000 years later, so the, 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 their ritual significance could have changed. But these primary forms, which may have cosmological significance, already took shape. So the forms are almost like a container. And the, the, the content of the container, the meaning of the container may change over time, but the form has stayed on. So these are on the coast. Probably the social structure will be more like Hawaiian kingdoms. Okay, so Hawaiians are Austronesians. When you trace the origin of Austronesian homeland around 6,000 years ago, it's on this coastal region of China. Pig feasting, drinking, canoes. And inland, especially in the highland region, so it's in the west, is the so-called the Yangshao society. They are much more communal. So the big, large, they make large houses, they paint their pottery, their fermentation techniques uh, you, you take place in a big amphora, and then they drink communally with a straw. So you mm. sit around that amphora and drink, uh, drink like this. So the tomb are secondary mass burials as well. So individual, when they pass away, probably they store it somewhere and periodically they connect their remains and you bury them in these mass burials. So individual identity and individual achievements seem to be erased. 
again, pig feasting is very important. Uh, and that large communal house is the center of their ritual and social focus, but no individual stand out. So what happened toward the transition we are looking at is how the coastal cities collapse. And then the Yangshao, these kind of very communal society, is start to disintegrate as well. Mm. And then suddenly, all the coastal forms start to be uh, um, adopted by the highland communities. So you see basically these jade forms and these ritual drinking, a lot of things that focus on individuals start to appear on the highland regions. At the same time, when these technologies, material culture coming in from the Eurasian steppes, from the north, from the west, are coming in as well. So making places like Shimao and uh, Taosu uh, a syncretic place uh, or a melting pot for something new. Something new that's the beginning of a Bronze Age society where Bronze started to have ritual significance in ways that you've never seen before in the steps. The steps, they have knowledge to the technology, but no social differentiation. But in China, it immediately starts to become the symbol of kingship. And that took place when the people use bronze to produce drinking vessels. So drinking has been with Chinese society for thousands of years. And then suddenly, you use the new technology to create those vessels. And then that's paired with lacquer, which is traditional, and very elaborate ceramics, and also jade. So you see the Neolithic tradition and the Bronze Age tradition merging together. So that's the nature of these Bronze Age cities. And you say that it's representative of kingship. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Um, kingship is associated with the notion of three dynasties. So the three dynasties are the major ruling line, lines of Bronze Age China. It started around 2100 BC and finished around late 3rd century BC. That's when the first empire started to rise, the, the one that built the Great Wall and Terracotta soldiers. But once you enter middle first millennium BC, that's already a transition to Iron Age. So Iron Age developed at the eve of imperial formation. So the Bronze Age is covered by these three dynasties. 2100 BC, that's the first dynasty. 1600 BC, that's the second dynasty. And then Around 1056 BC, that's the beginning of the Third Dynasty. The Third Dynasty is the classical period, the one that left us was transmitted text, the classical text. And Confucius lived in the later part of the Third Dynasty. And he was very concerned that the archaic tradition are being ignored. You know, people are moving into a more modern notion of social structure. 
you know, centralized governance, rise to empire. So the three dynasties is more archaic notion of kingship. And they, they focus on, uh, let's see, a certain notion of le legitimacy that's symbolized by nine bronze vessels. These nine bronze vessels are tripod vessels for cauldron, for cooking meat. And the legend goes, in the late third millennium BC, there was a massive flood. And then the leg legendary sage king sent this, this figure, cultural hero, the great Yu. So it's similar like a feathered, uh, feathered uh, what's his name? Um, Quite in some, my some quarter, yeah. Yes, <laughs> he has a long name. Um, it's even worse than Russian, from what I understand. Or wasn't there? Wasn't there one you were trying to tell me about? Feathered that? serpent. Yes, but he has like a native name as well. I yeah, forgot. Uh, it's uh, Quetzalcoatlus. Mm. No, is that I was a thinking dinosaur? of Poikley, Poikley, or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the Russians have a very, very funny way of transliterating the the Mayan names. But I think that the feathered serpent god is Quetzalcoatlus. Yeah, yeah, it is. It yeah. Is. The feathers of is similar to that. It's basically a cultural hero that has his odyssey, you know, has cities that are supposed to be ruled by his descendant. So the Chinese equivalent of that is a great flood controller. So he went around, controlled the flood, uh, joined the floods, and as he performed this flood control journey, he also mapped classified the landscape mm. and designed a scheme of a tribute you know tribute extraction he classified the lands chinese landscape that's rescued from the flood into nine regions so once the flood control was completed he his son basically declared a dynasty so these nine cauldrons, legendary cauldrons, was allegedly cast with the copper ore was collected from these nine regions. So as tribute. So in this story, you can see there is a connection of landscape, as metallurgy, and food, because these cauldrons are supposed to be cooking food, for feasting and ancestral offerings, ancestral veneration, and the kingship. So basically, whoever controls these nine vessels, then they have the legitimacy. And these nine vessels supposed to have changed the hand when the last king became a tyrant. And then the, the next dynasty rose and seized the capital and seized the nine vessels. So that's the Chinese notion of kingship is based on this legendary landscape coming rescued from the flood control and these nine symbols coming out of it. Mm. Uh, I so can I can I ask some questions about the Mesoamerican connection here? Because sure. you know, uh, could be complete coincidence, 
could be convergent, but for some reason in Mesoamerica, we have feathered serpents, jade discs. We have this facade in Shimao that looks very Mesoamerican. There seems to be some shared aesthetic between the two. And there's, of course, the Austronesian peopling hypothesis as well for South America. Um, do you have, do you entertain that there was cultural diffusion between these groups or that they had a shared ancestor culturally or, or how do you explain these coincidences? Uh, yes. Uh, let me see. I don't agree with more direct uh, links. So I think I would say if there, if there are similarity, uh, these are the similarities that go way back into upper Paleolithic, uh, as Kisi Chang has argued. His explanation for the similarity would be uh, these art forms, uh, these perspectives, these religious uh, uh, approaches, like shamanistic rituals, they probably go back to the early modern human mind. So the, the migrants that went to um, the New World uh, from Northern Asia, when they go there, they already have these kind of cultural endowment that's shared uh, in humanity, at least in East Asia. And then the Austronesians share similarity, like their gods, Taki, look like the Leangzhu god, is partly because their homeland are there. So if you go trace to six, 7,000 years ago, the art in coastal China looked very similar. But, you know, the Austronesians reached Hawaii and the Easter Islands only a thousand years ago. So there's a long evolution in their cultural development, in, in their colonization of these Pacific uh, and Indian Ocean islands. So the deep structure are already there. I think this is the only way we can support that similarity. Uh, I do not see any evidence for contemporaneous connection. It's like 4,000 years ago in China, you have people going to the New World. I don't see that. I mean, you got to admit, though, that, that that facade in Shimao looks incredibly Muslim. It looks very, like, almost Mayan or... Aztec, right? And so to to kind of to to dig on that a little bit. So if you assume that there's a shared ancestry, and the peopling occurs along the lo long arc of the Pacific, then you would expect that to shift significantly by the time that people get to Mesoamerica. Well, not only that, but you would expect to see some of that Aztec-like artwork in North America. Yeah, and so I mean, the closest that I can think is. Plingit art, which is very stylized, and these figures that are—I mean, is this in in Alaska? Yeah, it's in Alaska and around Sitka. It's it's yeah. the it's North the Northwest coast. Yeah, exactly, the Pacific Northwest. But then it's not it's not the same this, that, in in a clear way. It's it's very striking and geometric but it yeah. doesn't look like mesoamerican art but the facade of the building in shimao looks very mesoamerican and so i guess the question would be 
What sort of evidence would you need in order to think that the connection could have been contemporaneous? Uh, the problem is the Mayan art is very late. So e even you add Omak into the play, then, then that's still a thousand years later. And the, the Omak will be contemporaneous with Bronze Age China. But then you can still see uh, some similarity, but Omak, you know, it, it has those colossal head it depicting uh, actual human figures. Those you, you don't see them in China. Uh, and they have these massive uh, mounds. So once you put these similarities in, in their chronological framework, in their diachronic uh, sequence, then it's hard to match them. Mm. That's the problem. There's like I a see. thousand years missing. Essentially. Yeah. I see. That is really and then the Chinese ones, the Sima ones, are unique in terms of is a stone relief carving. But that type of image has been carved on jade for a long time mm. in, in the coastal region of Liangzhou. Is jade a thing in Europe or in the Indo-European cultures as well? Or it's just in East Asia? Yes, uh, there are many societies use jade, but uh, most of them, I think, in, in terms of Eurasia, is a simple uh, jade axe, something like that, like in Siberia. But during the small period, that relief coming are extraordinary. They are like paper thin, mm. and they have these very elaborate line carved uh, iconography on them. But you don't see it in Mesopotamia or the no, Mediterranean. They are not that interested in jade. They're into lapis lazuli and things mm -hmm. like that. And so we we have this city, Shimao, which when I was reading the article, it was suggesting that it was anomalously early for our current model of ancient Chinese history. Is that, is that an accurate description, or is that one of those things that passes through the Popsi press and ends up being a warping of the way that the academic community looks at it? It is unexpected for that region in that form. So when the Liangzhu city was gradually... Um, the Liangzhu culture, material culture, was discovered fairly early in the 30s, I think. And But the structure, the complex structure of the Liangzhu, including its very sophisticated hydraulic projects and its extraordinary scale, those were only discovered in the, since the 1980s, like the hydraulic, the, the, the dam system was only uh, discovered in the last decade with the help of declassified American satellite image, the corona image, you know, uh, because many of these public works, they have no cultural remains on it. Only in satellite images you see its extraordinary scale. So remote sensing. So in that case, 
Um, Shimao is not old in terms of cities, prehistorical cities. It developed after the collapse of the coastal cities in the lower Yangtze and also in middle Yangtze. So in that case, we were not looking at, at a curve going like this and reach Shimao. Instead, you have multiple episodes and you can maybe think about it as a punctuated equilibrium. You know, sudden explosion of development and then collapse. The collapse of those Neolithic cities might have something to do with climatic change or anomaly of the late third millennium BC. And so, and then after the collapse, there's almost kind of a reconfiguration. So the, these core symbols, these artisans, these ritual knowledge seem to be circul circulated around. You, you could have a diaspora situation. And then in these new regions, they were put together again in very different ways. So the cylinder I was describing suddenly appeared on these highland regions. Some are heirloom from the coast, some are newly created ones, but somehow these newly created ones, the iconography is gone. So they are plain surface. We don't quite understand why. So in this case, this, the area Shimao is located is called Ordors. Okay. So the Yellow River go around like this, like an S shape. So with two loops. This loop, the, the Western loop, it goes up toward Mongolian Plateau. And inside the loop, there's a great wall going like this, horizontally, east-west. So the region called Ordors is basically the area, the desert area inside the loop, north of the Great Wall. And the Shimao is right on the Great Wall. So for people familiar with later history, we all understand the Great Wall being a frontier, especially the frontier between the Agorian Empire and the Pastoral Empire. So it's not a place we would expect to find great civilization. And that's why it was a surprise. But we can also say it's a surprise to who? Because we we have been used to the idea that the central plains being the, the cradle of Chinese civilization. So the central plains is basically the area around the other loop. So mm. the S-shape is going south. So that's the middle Yellow River is right at the, the central plains at the southern end of the eastern loop. That's the area where historical empires and the first three dynasties had their capital. And that's where you have fertile, fertile uh, plains and basins. So uh, that the weight of history over the last three, four thousand years have really helped us to, to always look for origins 
to in that area, what we call the central plain. So in this case, the discovery of Shimao is almost like uh, a wild card. It suddenly changed the picture. But if you look carefully to those erased history, you know, uh, these um, storytelling that was recorded by the early imperial historians, and they would say, you know, the, the Xiongnu Empire, their ancestors are related to the first dynasty. So, of course, the 20th century historians would say, that's nonsense. It must be a kind of a Sinocentric perspective. You know, you, you project these views to the Northern society for people without history. But what if they, these Northern societies indeed have some claims to those areas? Because when you look at the career of the first emperor, you would realize that the reason it, it built the Great Wall over there is because they pushed, he sent his army to push the northern population out of the highland area. And then they built a wall. So what I'm saying is before the imperial army pushed these agro-pastoralists off the highland, that's their home. And the Shimao legacy somehow could still survive there. And then once the empires take over that area, you know, they still recognize there's some archaic legacy there. But if you don't have writing, then you don't have a voice. That's the, the asymmetry of historical narrative. Legends. Uh, of people without history versus imperial scribes who write on everything from the Central Plains perspective. That was actually something that I was thinking of when you were talking about the origin of kingship and the feathered serpents and these nine vessels. I was wondering if there was anything in those legends that touched upon there being someone else who brought the technology forward, or if it begins already inside of China, inside of these cultures where the technology just arrives as if from the gods? Because that seems like that would be an example of erasing the outside presence by the imperial scribes. Yes, uh, that's a good and very tough question. Uh, there, there is a recognition that the first dynasty is the beginning of Bronze Age. Okay, and then there's a recognition that there was before the, the rise of the first dynasty it is the era of jade. So using jade to make weapons and ritual forms. And before that is the Stone Age. So basically Chinese civilization as seen from the early imperial era has its own notion of Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age with a Jade Age separating the Stone Age and the Bronze Age. So the Jade Age, the the era of legend, you know, the, these uh, sage kings that was active in the late third millennium BC. Uh, but there's there was no legend about 
metal smiths coming in from outside. So, and it's also interesting, the Chinese notion of cultural landscape is always looking toward the east. Even though many technology came from the north and the west, the, the center, or, or let's say, the special definition of legitimacy is always the Central Plains area. So even for like the first emperor, his kingdom rose from Western part of China because his ancestors were deportees, hmm. were resistance fighters, loyal to the second dynasty. So when the third dynasty came to power, they were fighting against the, the ruler founders of the third dynasty. So when they were finally suppressed around 1000 BC, they were deported all the way to Western China. And when eventually they built a state, when they eventually annexed all the competing states, built an empire, the first emperor, all its imperial tours are toward the east. So somehow the west, the north, they just do not have that symbolic weight. So in terms of uh, Chinese notion of cultural landscape, that only changed with the introduction of Buddhism. That's when people start to think, okay, China is not the sole civilization. There are greater civilization beyond China in the West. That's how the pilgrims would see it when they go to India. But before that, uh, there's a, there may be legends of gods like Queen Mother of the West, probably reference Central Asia. But if you see these locations of secret landscape or destinations of these imperial uh, tours, visit these secret places, try to mimic the footsteps of sage rulers, flood controller, for example, just like you follow the footsteps of the feather serpent, is always to the east. Yeah, in that case, uh, somehow these origins, regions of these technology do not change the cultural outlook of China. Well, so it's interesting because the, the city on the coast was... Uh, Liangzhou? Yes. Okay, so Liangzhou is the city that is on the coast that has these, uh, the rituals that diffuse into the highlands because yes. there's this thing that happens at the end of the third millennium where it's either flood or climate change, but something forces them up into the hills. Yes. And so if, what year, what year is Shimo? Shimo is about 2300 to 1800 but it lingers on a little bit maybe to 1600 so by the time the shimao is is active the displacement has already occurred so do you think that the looking to the east is some kind of cultural lineage of the people who came to the highlands to to survive oh uh the diaspora is not that direct, okay? So Liangzhou is on the coast, 
And then it was buffered by many tribal communities outside of it. Okay, especially, so Liangzhou is in the lower Yangtze River. And then north of that is the so-called the Huai River, the third largest river of China. It has a lot of tributaries. It's between the Yangtze River and the Yellow River. And the Huai River is a little bit like a Mediterranean, hmm. like in the middle of Chinese uh, land. And it connects everywhere. So, do you mean Mediterranean in context of trade relationships? Yeah, oh, I see, yeah. I see. So, I thought you meant so like climate or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So basically, the basically the the Huai River is not very long, but it has a very dense tributary network. So once Liangzhou collapsed, and then these tribes living in the Huai River Valley, they are the ones that was responsible for the dispersal of the Liangzhou material culture. Mm. And we can't chase the actual refugees where did the Liangzhou people went. But we can see is the, these tribes in the north of Liangzhou, they are the ones, they, these elite warriors, they are the ones that's most active in spreading the material culture and ritual forms toward the highland regions. Yeah, I'm thinking about that missing link some more too. It seems like there's probably a lot of archaeological sites that are lost below the coastline at this point. Is there any work going on to look under the water for, for more coastal early cities? Because you would have thought oh. that around three, 4,000 BC, the, the coast would have been, perhaps the coastline would have been much different than today. Uh, I don't think that such effort has been in place, but in Liangzhou, you see fluctuating uh, sea, sea lines. Mm. Okay. So there are advancing of uh, flooding from the coast. Uh, they, they live very uh, thick deposits of silt. So it's clear it's not very uh, inhabitable there. And that's probably part of the reason that people dispersed. When, when Liangzhu was abandoned, we don't know where it, people went, but there were northern migrants moving into this area, but they never really regenerated the city. It seems their life was very tough because you see more flooding episodes, and eventually the whole area was abandoned. And then when the Bronze Age people coming in, those came from the south. So there's no indigenous lineage that's preserving that memory. But uh, really, that topic, that whole topic, so fascinating to me because it seems like people are once again really fixated on the idea that some of our cities may soon find themselves underwater due to the climate changing. But this seems to have been a recurring theme since the earliest days of humanity, that they're always living close to the water because you can fish there. And the water is always changing levels and it's cataclysmic. And almost every single culture has a myth about these floods that are devastating the people. You know, the gods send this to punish mm. the people or for whatever reason. And it, it's so interesting to me that 
despite this happening over and over and over again, people today seem sort of surprised by it. Yes, yes. I, I think um, the pioneers for recognizing this will be um, the American archaeologist working in Central Asia, uh, Pompey Lee. I think he, he in the beginning of 20th century, he realized there are these Central Asian Bronze Age cities were abandoned due to climatic change. I think we we finally realized these are more of a global phenomena. Do you think that oh, Shim oh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. I was oh, say, I just say <laughs> I just say that uh, in areas where it has been seen as a cradle of civilization like the Yarra River Valley, we're not used to that. Only in Central Asia, you know, it seemed to be more obvious. Mm. Because it wasn't changing as much there, you think, or um, because I think because of the the climatic change uh, will leave a more prominent mark there. In China, people just farm again and again. Many of these traces are not so obvious, but uh, you know, in Central Asia, when it's abandoned, it, it's just abandoned. You don't have repeated occupation in the same location again and again. Mm. I guess. Is is that because the cultures that were in Central Asia were nomadic to begin with? No, uh, these people we, we're talking about uh, Bronze Age, almost uh, uh, agro-pastoral uh, society uh, that's migrants from the northern edge of uh, Iranian plateau. Mm. So I, I when the city was abandoned, yes, the the pastoralists, the Andrew Noah folks would move in and they would not restart the urban tradition. I see. Yeah. But in China, places like this, if a place was abandoned, then later population come in and start farming again. So you, you don't see these cities just get left there. You know, in Central Asia, you can see every room from the satellite, like uh, Gano Tepe. Uh, but uh, Chinese sites, uh, even even like uh, Bronze Age cities, you can't even see it in nor in the satellite image, especially in northern China, because the farming has erased them. Do you think that the relative stability of the climate in that one particular region in the West was why that civilization was able to rise up there and stabilize? Like this coastal way of living was just not as sustainable in the long run? I don't quite understand uh, why it rose uh, because that's not the most favorable place. It's mm. not like that area was was great and then they just when kind of keep going when everybody else collapsed. That area has always been a very marginal place, even by Neolithic standard. Hmm. I think it it might have rose suddenly because it's um, on a gateway to the steppe regions. So it could be these pilgrimage centers where people coming from a very different economic background could converge. Mm. And then there's some kind of a, um, 
pilgrimage economy going on. And people bring different livestock, grain, textiles together for trade. That could be. Uh, Do you mean like a, a a gateway to the west, or I guess to yeah, to yeah, the west? to the north and to the west? Ordor's region is always a gateway to Eurasian interactions. So, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Um, in the, for example, in the Mongolian Empire, 13th century, there, there, there's a, that area has a lot of seals. They look just like Bronze Age seals from this period. So somehow, their Bronze Age Central Asian tradition has kept going there. It, it was very unusual where you see these, these seals in all doors uh, collected by the missionaries. They are only, you know, 700 years old, but it look identical to Central Asian ones at 2000 BC. What is, what is this Ordor's region? Ordor's region, as I said, is the area inside the Great Loop, north of the Great Wall. South of that Great Wall are the, the Lost Plateau, the very thick soil that's uh, good for millet farming. But north of the Great Wall is more like desert. And you're saying these seals are they're like cylinder seals from Mesopotamia or something? No, it's more like uh, compartmental seal. Like stamps? Uh, you can see them in, uh, yeah, uh, LACMA, Los Angeles County uh, Museum of Art. Uh, they, they look like open work seals, bronze seals. But they bear a, a clear resemblance to those from a completely different period and, and yes. from a different region as well. Yes. Those like a BMAC cities from 2000 BC. So, so the, somehow those seals, the, the forms, techniques has been kept in that region all the way to 13th century AD. We don't know what's the mechanism of that. And because there's, you're not seeing continuity of those seals through history, place after place after place. They just reappear or. Is there a continuous record of them being carried for, what, almost 2,000 years? That's a good question. Um, at least not on the Chinese side of things. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't think you, you can continue, continuously document it, you know, in your region steps. So, so you basically see these two, the Mongolian Empire ones and the Bronze Age compartmental seals of BMAC civilization. So Shimao sits at this interface. It's where is the Great Wall built already at the time that Shimao is there, or the Great oh, Wall no. gets built afterwards, much afterwards? Uh, so the Great Wall was built uh, in the late first millennium BC. Okay, so Shimao is a city that is on the. It's just south of the Great Wall. I was looking at a map, but at the time that it is, it is forming. It is at this crossroads between multiple different cultures, multiple different civilizations, and it also seems to be a place of manufacturing. Because when we were having our pre-show meeting, you said that you found a workshop that had like 20,000 needles in it? Yes, yes. So that could be evidence for a pilgrimage economy there, because these 
the central mound is about 70 meter tall. It looks kind of a, like a step pyramid. It's, it's modified from a natural hill with terraces. Terraces covered with stone wall, about 11 tier. And then on top of it is about a, a plaza of eight hectares. So there are architectural complex. And then these murals are discovered, these relief carvings are embedded in the foundations of these terrace walls. So these workshops and probably temples and palaces on, on top of that central mound. And when it's abandoned, all the trash was pushed over on the slope. So all the terrace walls are covered by these trash. And inside, you see copper things. So you see these uh, silk pieces, um, hemp cloths, and then huge amount of pottery and bone, and also these uh, needle workshop, which will probably, you know, there are good textile production going on there. It was involved in the trade. And also this is the period, probably new religious form coming together. Mm. You see cowrie shells from Indian Ocean showing up there, and you see a lot of um, turquoise beads showing up there. And um, bronze mirrors first time showing up, not on this site, but during this period from the Eurasian steppes in Central Asia. If you put these things together, like corridor shells and a mirror and uh, then drum and bells, that's a typical costume of a Siberian Altai shaman. Mm. So, so these things seem to appear together, but it resembles a costume of a later Altai shamanistic figure. How much later is the Altai figure? We know Altai has shamanistic traditions going way back, definitely in this period. Um, contemporaneous culture would be the Alkuniev culture, which is very famous for its uh, relief carving on stone. And those are fantastic in a way it depicts um, psychedelic images. You know, sun rays coming, uh, third eye over there. Hmm. So everyone would associate that with very typical shamanistic rituals. And they, they have human animal sacrifice and then they have these sensors probably to burn something like uh, cannabis so that is also the area for rock art rock art is always associated with shamanism so all that is all there but so uh, they do not necessarily have this costume but in historical period if you just google like Altai or Mongolian shamans, they would have these costumes with coral shells, with bells and uh, mirrors attached to their body. So I, I just looked up the Okunev culture, and one of the pictures that came up is that there is this figure with multiple feathers emerging yes. from its head. 
Yes. But that same figure is found both in India and Mesoamerica. Do well, you, yes. What, like, what's going on? That seems like such a particular... I've never seen that illustration before, and it seems... Of all of the possible versions of a god or a representation that you can make, it seems strange to have this same sort of figure appear in all three places yes. without there being some kind of contemporaneous spread. That you have to look into the human mind, how the mind works. Uh, in the 60s and 80s, you know, in North American archaeology, they're going to different directions. The main direction is represented by my professors at University of Michigan. That's the processual or new archaeology, which is really talking about environment, ecology, human adaptation. And at UCLA, there are people who try to go against that. They are more into, you know, the contemporary cultures of the 60s, the, uh, the shamanistic interests and the, the non-Western interests. So that, that's the interest that looking into shamanism, you know, looking at these toad images in uh, Mayan cultures. And then people, Kisi Chong picked up on that. But in the 90s onwards, people moved away. From that, because it's hard to do, you know, hard to break it down. It's very interpretive. But now, with the new development of cognitive science, it's possible to see what kind of a substance that a human have consumed and what kind of alteration in their mind. It could produce. So, for example, uh, there's a paper by Van Poole and Van Poole, recommended by my students 10 years ago. It is a study on how different kind of a culturally significant substances in North America affect cognition. So, if you use uh, tobacco, for example, it will produce these images. If you use um, um, these uh, mushroom, it will produce other images. So these are now, you know, can be mapped. So one substance block off the color. So you, you only get three colors, and that's the ones that's depicted on the pot. And then other substances produce entopic images. That's the images you see inside your brain. It's like if you press your eye hard and see all these geometric designs. Yes. So, so now it's possible to work on the human mind to figure out what is causing this. But like you're saying that if I lick a, a particular kind of toad that I'll see a seven-headed monster? But that's the crazy thing. So this is amazing because we had this guy from the Qualia Research Institute. His name is Andres Gomez Emilson, and he has been working on cataloging the various entities that show up depending on the psychedelic substances that you use. He's using yeah. DMT, but it seems like everybody sees the same creatures. Even when, across cultures? I think so. That's crazy, because I was always under the impression that 
depending on your religious upbringing, you would have a different experience. You know, if you're from a Christian tradition, you might think that you see Jesus. and But they're all shaped the same. Mm. So yes. the, the label that you put onto it is different, but the shape of the thing that you see appears to be consistent from person to person, from experience to experience. So this ties in very nicely to that idea, which the representation of these figures is the representation of the substance in context of the human yes. mind. That's fascinating. So there's like a seven-headed monster substance somewhere yes. that all these people had access to. I think it's toads based off this conversation. <laughs> yeah, like toads, magic mushroom, and uh, like in the new world, there are tobacco, and in Amazon, there's a whole array of other things. Uh, cannabis for your region, especially the Scythians. You know, the Scythian arts, the tattoo, the gold is always, yeah, have a uh, deer or horse and the lower body going like this in transformation. And that, I think, is uh, relatively confident we can connect with what uh, Herodotus has described of uh, uh, what Scythians are consuming. Because his descriptions are very precise. They use these little tents, like teepees, and they use these metal sensors, rocks inside, they heat the rocks and throw the cannabis seeds on top of these heated rocks, and then they would inhale these vapor, and then they would laugh hilariously. And those <laughs> teepees and sensors with rock inside has been discovered by Russian archaeologists or Soviet archaeologists in those fr frozen tombs in Tuba just mm -hmm. north of Altai. So uh, the problem is in some of these societies, I think the substance might be too sophisticated for our imagination. That's the problem. Say, for example, none of Chinese archaeologists have any experience of this. So th th there's a difficulty, you know, drawing the connections. We always see these distinctive bronze forms called drinking vessels. But you don't know why do you need these very specific forms to drink. Nobody can replicate the sequence. And also, if we can understand the Scythians and the, those arts quite well, but what about those Alkinev ones? But if you see the modern packaging of the cannabis products, like in California, you see cows with a third eye here <laughs> look just like <laughs> those Okinawa ones. So there, Anna's right. The, the forms could be universal because it is a certain substance acting on human cognition. And the human psyche are more universal. Is the cultural interpretation of it are different. If you see a god or see Jesus, that's based on your cultural kind of training to how to read those signals. But the production of the signal is, is something to deal with a neurological process. Not Seems like this would be an easy thing to test out, right? Like you could, you could give people substances and see if they see this seven-headed monster. So is Shamao a place where you're seeing a lot of these ritualistic applications? Because you said that you think that it might be a place where there's a new religion that's rising. Are you taking that because you're finding ceremonial vessels that could have been used for 
for these purposes? Somehow is not famous for that. Is the period right after Shen, mm. uh, in, in the site called Arito, right in the heartland of uh, Chinese civilization, where these so-called drinking vessels suddenly flourished. And uh, those are the, the, the same vessels that the first bronze production adopt the form. Mm. You know, among many possibilities you can use bronze for, like a weapon or two, they choose to replicate these vessels. And these vessels, uh, how can I describe it? The, the first one that was produced in bronze is a tripod uh, beaker. So you basically is like a little cup with very long kind of uh, um, sprout and then with three legs. It has two little posts on top. We don't know what is the purpose, probably to install some kind of uh, a strainer. And, and then there's another top vessel that's extremely distinctive. Is again tripod, and the top it opens up like this widely, like a cup, and then on the side it has a little tube going this way. So if you see the wide opening on the top, you you will think it's for pouring, but here there's a little tube. How do you use it? And my colleague, who works in American Southwest, described to me based on his kind of understanding of the design logic. That is, this little tube is not for pouring. And that opening is not for pouring either, is to put your mouth over it. Hmm. And then you have your finger on that tube. So when, for example, <laughs> cannabis seeds are heated inside that cup, and you you let this go, and you inhale that way. So mm. so that again is very distinctive form where nobody have ever thought about that theory, because in China these substances are totally prohibited. Mm. And then the the second form that was replicated in bronze is a tripod pitcher. So imagine you have three legs, hollow legs. And the top, the body is like enclosed like a dome. And then on the dome, there's a little cover. You can open it. Okay. And then on top of this dome, this whole thing is enclosed. There's like a chimney going straight up. And again, that's called a, a wine vessel. But you would be very puzzled. How do you pour if this thing is vertical? And then you, you have this little lid. So somehow we need to understand the residue of these vessels and understand the function. Because the people by this time, Chinese people has been brewing alcohol for thousands of years. And those pottery and the lacquerware on the coast are extremely thin, as thin as eggshell. And the designs are superb. They look like Italian designs. So they totally understand how to pour well. 
okay, as a picture. But when you look at these designs, they are so unusual, yet they seem to be designed for performing very specific purpose, which we don't understand. Sounds like the Chinese archaeologists need to take a sabbatical in California to study some bongs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, that's the word my students reacted to when I showed them this tripod picture. I said, what it is? They say, it's bong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes and, sense. And Casey so- Chong, in the 80s, once he was influenced by people like uh, Peter First at UCLA, who work on Mayan uh, civilization, he proposed that these bronze vessels were for alcohol, could be infused with cannabis, where the bronze iconography could be perceived by people under the influence of these substances. So, so the things are flying out. So that's his uh, shamanistic perspective on these bronze vessels. He basically argued that early kingship are indeed uh chief shamans they're not like emperors or mm. administrators they're, they're like the chief priest do you think that but, this cannabis was coming up from india or was it indigenous to the region and nobody was exploring it before then or the, yeah this is very interesting casey chow when he designed this idea of uh prehistorical chinese interaction sphere he refused to engage potential interactions with Siberia, uh, with, with like Eurasian steppes and Central Asia. And the reason he, he was doing this is he, he was taught by the first generation Chinese archaeologists like Li Ji, who excavates Anya. Those archaeologists were doing Chinese archaeology in 1920s against what they perceived to be Western colonial imperialist archaeology. Mm. And that these Western archaeology basically argue that Chinese Bronze Age society were diffusion from Mesopotamia or, or Eurasian steppes. And Chinese scholars at that time don't like that idea. You can see early 20th century, this is the tension between imperialist and nationalist sentiment. So Keith John almost reacted against that. And he basically traced shamanism all the way into Chinese upper Paleolithic. And then he looked more connections, similarities toward Siberia and Americas and Austronesians. And then he later saw the Western society as a breakaway, a deviation from the human universal trajectory, which is shamanistic. So his colleague, uh, Lamberklovsky, who works on the Indus civilization of Central Asia, always tried to lure Casey Chung into that conversation, mm. but he, he always kind of stayed away. Uh, I think now it's clear that with the introduction of metallurgy, which Casey Chung did not discuss how it came into China, it, it probably these religious practice 
from outer area, including the use of cannabis, could be introduced that way. Yeah, because there's a, I don't, I don't know if, I'm not no expert in this, but I, I read a really fascinating article about the early 1700s, uh, the, the early founding years of our own country here. And there was a particular strain of cannabis that came from India that had all of the psychedelic properties. I guess that the normal hemp plant that people use for rope and so forth is kind of weak. It's a sativa yes. kind of plant. And so I wonder if, uh, and there's actually letters from George Washington and many of our founding fathers where they're trying to secure the, the special kind of cannabis, actually, wow. um, which is quite fascinating. Um, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington... Uh, Alexander Hamilton, all of these guys were interested in growing a few of these plants because they had these special properties to them. Wow. And, but this That's was a totally different kind of plant from the one that they, they had fields of on their plantation for hemp, essentially. And so I, Ooh, I wonder yeah. if the surfacing of that particular varietal uh, from India, if opening up of that trade network had something to do with the initiation of that particular tradition all of a sudden with these, these bronze pots and so forth. That's a very interesting observation. Um, what I suspect is these potent uh, plants could be developed in the north where India are on the receiving end. Hmm. So, because when you look at the Indus cities, you don't see evidence for these things. And the, these things are always uh, associated with the steppe population, the northern population. Mm. And uh, cannabis doesn't do very well in the heat. That I don't really know. Um, but P I know the, the idea one. of yeah. Soma, uh, that, that's in the Vedic. Uh, versus, you know, Indo-Europeans, those studies. The, this holy drink of Soma, one of the proposed ingredients is a cannabis. Another mm -hmm. one would be ephedra. Mm -hmm. Ephedra is like a desert tea. It also has some potency. In Sma, there's a lot of ephedra growing naturally. And then there's one site. So Sma is like a city. There's a one kind of gate area. There's so many ephedra growing there. It, 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 the, the location was named as ephedra place. Hmm. So I was wondering whether these ephedra could be introduced, it was humanly cultivated there for these reasons. And the problem is, if Casey Chang suggests that those Cannabis, those alcohol that was consumed in those bronze vessels were infused with cannabis. He would treat this as a long shamanistic tradition in China. But if this is an introduction from the north, then we don't really know, you know, whether it actually stayed with later Chinese civilization. Because when the third dynasty took over the Shang, around, you know, last century of the second millennium BC, the kings specifically stated that the reason that the Shang fell is because their elites, their generals are all indulged in alcohol consumption. So mm -hmm. 
prohibited its own generals in drinking. So drinking in the third dynasty is more became a ritual thing, paying tribute to ancestor. And if you look at the late Shang art, you know, it's fantastic in its bronze iconography. It's like explosion. And then when you look into the third dynasty, in the beginning, it's like that. And then it became very sober. Mm. It's very ceremonial. And if you put together the historical narrative about, you know, the elite fell because of their indulgence in alcohol and, and look at the art historical evidence, it seemed to make sense. If that's the case, some of these recipes could be lost. Because once you move into the third dynasty, all these vessels, they look very ceremonial. They don't seem to care the original function that was designed for in early, uh, around the time of the first dynasty. And it seems significant that it would be the third empire that built the Great Wall to completely isolate these areas from the cultures that are more shamanistic. Oh, no. Um, so the, the first empire came at the end of the third dynasty. Sorry. sorry, sorry so I, I meant the third dynasty. I'm sorry. I'm using my, I'm using my language incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, so the, the third dynasty is elite still have a lot of interactions, including intermarrying with these highland people. So the boundary is extremely blurred. And uh, it gradually, over time, you know, the, the, the process of othering start to take place. And, uh, yeah, eventually, um, the royal power is very weakened. And then, so basically, during the third dynasty, which started around last century of the second millennium, in the beginning, there's a very strong royal power. And it, it, its population seemed to mingle with these cultural others. And they, they intermarry with them. Uh, and then they, they engage a lot of trade, like shell trade with these, and gold as well, all came from these cultural others. And eventually, Around 771 BC, there are kind of a factional conflict in the court resulting in the invasion of these Highlanders. So basically, the Highlanders is backing one, sec one faction. It's, it's basically successors, you know, different wives, royal wives, it has different sons, and the crown prince versus the heir of the favorite consort, that sort of thing. So eventually the royal capital was sacked by the, the Highlanders and then the royal house fled to the east and that marked the end of kind of a royal power and then these different kingdoms start to compete. And then the Great Wall gradually started to be built. So the Chinese versus the non-Chinese start to be consolidated or codified by this physical barrier. So at 221 BC, when all these kingdoms was taken over by this originally very small kingdom in the West, that's the beginning of the first empire. Then they connect all the walls. Yes. I see. I see. Once that happened, 
we versus they became more well defined. I had the I had written down that the Great Wall was at one thousand BC, not one thousand, because this would mean that it's it's later. Oh no, not one thousand BC. Uh, is the Great Wall uh, was built by the first empire at two to one BC. Got it. But when they built it, there are already sections built by other kingdoms in the third, fourth century BC. So this is this would be long after Shimao had already yeah. st- had yeah. already faded. Yeah. Did this turn towards the sobriety with the turning away from the shamanistic hallucinogens and so forth? Did that persist all the way up into modern China right now? Because modern China is also very much opposed to these shamanistic substances, right? Is that yes. something that I, I changed think, uh, and never changed back? I think the the general pattern is bureaucracy and centralized administration are incompatible with shamanistic visions. Hmm. So the more that a real government start to emerge, the the less shamanistic uh, they look like. But uh, maybe one way to put it would be the archaic form of kingship was like the great tradition. And then once you move into imperial era where the appointed officials, you know, manage these territories as governors and centralize the bureaucracy, uh, those great traditions, it gets, became a small, little tradition, you know, uh, village shamans or, or um, all What's kinds that? of uh, religious practitioners. Hmm. And later, they all get incorporated into Taoism. You know, religious Taoism. So many of his rituals uh, preserve of some some of his shamanistic roots. Yeah, I mean, I guess that fits in line with the idea that like an imperial conquering force needs to <clears throat> somehow undermine the existing governing structures to some extent. You can't have everybody looking up to these shamanistic leaders when you need everybody to look to the local governor instead, and so. It would make sense to displace those traditions. Um, do you want to take a quick break? Sure. Yes. So now can you see the map? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. On the right side, the dark area uh, on the east coast, that's the Liangzhu heartland. So you probably will probably looking at these Hmong cities uh, that's, very um, active and very rich 5,000 years ago. And then they have these ritual cylinders uh, that's carved with iconography. And some of the iconography very detailed look like Aushunishan Taki is like a god. And then some of these are highly simplified, you know, like stacks, like, like a totem pole uh, ancestors. So the shaded area is where its influence reaches the lowland area, the extent of uh, its political influence 5,000 years ago. And then around the 2300 BC, it, due to that climatic changes, uh, environmental degradation, advances of uh, sea level, it, it just dispersed, it collapsed. 
And suddenly you see these jade forms going way up into the Ordor's area. Shimao is right here. And here is that great loop. Mm -hmm. And then you can even see these jade forms without the iconography all the way in the eastern part of the Tibetan Plateau, the upper Yellow River. You know, this is the scope of these, uh, at least a diaf diaspora of forms. We don't know about the people. Um, and uh, here, this is the scope of prehistorical Chinese interaction sphere. So it's about the size of Western Europe, where different regional trajectories of Neolithic tradition has been developing for thousands of years. And then due to the increased mobilization in the uh, Bronze Age society uh, in the, the West part of Asia, and you have increasing encounters with the steppe population. So the dashed line is the poor uh, representation because you know, you're looking at networks, not boundaries. Uh, but nevertheless, Ordor's area, Hershey Corridor, these are the kind of gateways interacting with these Northern populations, probably have movement of textile, uh, animal hide, uh, leather, uh, Shima itself, the estimate have um, 400,000 sheep represented by the bones. Mm. Uh, so Hershey Corridor has copper deposit and jade deposit. So if you have prospecting activities going from the, the north to south or from the west to east, and also the jade prospecting activities from east to west is going to converge in those oases along the Hershey Corridor. And over here, the BMAC cities, uh, Central Asian cities will be flourishing again uh, at the, this interface between uh, what's Gregory Purcell uh, of UPenn Indus uh, Specialist, uh, he called Middle Asian Interaction Sphere uh, with you know, Eurasian steps. So you basically see three interaction networks that both two of them are agrarian. One is in East Asia, one is in Middle Asia, and they both have cities. They interacting with a common neighbor in the north without city, without agriculture, but have high mobility. It has tin deposits and the copper deposit and also, you know, uh, high mobility with horses, cattle, and sheep. So with, as a result, it creates some similarities between Central Asia and Ordors. Mm. But what Chinese side don't have is animal, uh, sheep, and cattle, mm. and metallurgy. So basically, the Middle Asia interaction sphere is much more rich in, in terms of diversity of knowledge, and they have also have writing. Chinese side don't have writing. So you can basically imagine the Eurasian steppes as a, as a highway, a cultural highway, where things, not only their own material gets brought into China, but indirectly the Central Asian materials. And Central Asian materials connect with the rest of Middle Asia. Um, 
about the, the European reference, if you look at Alexander's career, it's pretty much following the Middle Asia, Asia interaction sphere, you know, and, and that's also the scope of Persian Empire. So Persian Empire basically may consolidated these existing networks going way back to Bronze Age. And then when Alexander go in, you know, this is pretty much the extent of his conquest. Yeah. Uh, other than Herodotus, you know, people don't really talk about uh, the Scythians that much. Okay. So back to Shimao is right here. And uh, these lines representing is stone walls. So the white line is, is the outer wall is about four square kilometers. And then the yellow line, the inner wall is about two square kilometers. And most of the architecture inside the yellow lines. And here is the central mount over here. And I can quickly show you, this is the central mount with its plaza uh, in front of it being excavated. And now this is what it looked like with these terraces. And what were these hydrological uh, structures that you were talking about? Hydrological ones, uh, those are the ones in Liangzhou. Mm, those okay, are, okay. are massive dams in the oh, reservoir. Yeah. Is, I actually meant to ask something about that. Is there some indication that the dams failed and that's why the delta became yeah, uninhabitable? could be. Uh, by middle third millennium, uh, there's no more repairs. So somehow it, it's going into a decay. Mm. So in this, we're, we're watching this aerial footage of Shimao and it strikes me that it's on top of a hill, but it's not that much taller than the other hills around it? Is there any indication that there's more archaeological sites that are underneath those hills that haven't been found yet? Uh, and what do you mean underneath? So, I mean, sorry, I mean just buried at the top. Like it kind of looks hills. like it's cut out of a hill almost. Right? Well, yeah, so the yeah, excavation is cut out of a natural hill. And so what I'm saying is that there's all these other natural hills that are around it has anybody oh, done LIDAR studies oh, of them to see if there's I anything see. that's there? Yeah, I have provided them with uh, American Corona images. So those are like first generation spy set uh, from the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think so. S some smaller ones, garrisons and smaller cities are discovered, but not these massive, this particular massive one. Uh, because although they have been recently discovered, most of these sites have given us their calling cards almost 100 years ago. So these sites, Shimao is very rich for jade. Mm. So over in the 1920s and 30s, thousands of jade has come out of here. And a German art historian, Salome, has been purchasing them. So they end up uh, in um, Western museums. So if they, the other ones often have a cave dwellings inside, but not as massive as this. Mm -hmm. And these walls, these are the kind of Mayan looking uh, relief carvings that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. What's unusual is these, these carvings, some of them are upside down. Some mm -hmm. are not in sequence. 
as if they have been recycled in a, from an early temple. But mm. What is that early temple? Who created those early temples? That's what we don't know. It's fascinating because this area has no history for that. As you can see, they don't look like uh, Alkinev uh, shamanistic images either. Mm -hmm. So so how did these get invented? And then they, we don't know. And then there's uh, dozens of these eagles um, in the architecture on top of the mound. And how they were used, we don't know either. And these jade pieces, thousands of them will be inserted, uh, incorporated into these architecture. Yeah, that's the one right there. It's hard to just not see Mesoamerican artwork yes. in that picture there. It's, well, it's yes. also interesting how it's, it's in this isolated, wall. Yeah. It's, I, well, even when you look at it in context of that wall that you were showing, there's one block or a couple of blocks that have this relief carving on them, and the other ones are just plain, as yeah. if, like you said, yeah. they came from somewhere else. Yes, and this is the foundation of a massive, um, probably structure on top of the mound. Uh, and many of these images, they look like ones coming out of jade. And then they also look uh, like the ones in uh, bronze vessels, iconography that was created during the second dynasty. Like the early bronzes are very plain. They're very functional, except we don't understand it's the purpose it was designed for. But once you go to the Second Dynasty, you know, especially the late Shang period, uh, around the three, thir uh, 3,200 years ago, and these images are really fantastic and depicted on the, the bronze surface. So, In terms of the architecture, is this reminiscent of other regions in any way? What, like the layout of this city and this being carved into a hill and all of this? Is no. this... Nothing in China look like this. Um, in Iran, you have step pyramid like this, uh, but uh, you know. Yeah, I didn't it, want to use the word step pyramid because it does kind of look like a step pyramid. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it almost to me, it almost seems like there's there could be a case to be made that the Aztecs and the Shima people were tapping into some older civilization that we haven't found yet. That was a uh, common a commonality of some sort. It's it's very it's very bizarre to me. Yes. Uh, again, you know, even Omeg uh, is a thousand years after this, and then what's before that? It's hard to tell. It's you know the the New World archaeology has a different rhythm of time uh, compared to the Chinese ones. So there's, there's been some, we've talked to a couple of people on the show that have suggested that there are some issues with the dates. And I know that that's a pretty, that's a big bomb to throw. But I always wonder when we talk about the fact that these are not aligned temporally, if mm. there is some eventual discoveries that are going to be made with the techniques that we currently use that will shift our timelines somewhat. You're talking about the Hofs? Yeah, because there's the Hallstad Plateau. Plateau. Do you know about this? No. So the Hallstad Plateau is this uh, period of radiocarbon dating where... Oh, oh, that one, yes. yes. Right, so it basically, okay. instead of having this this 
instead of having this clean slope relationship of amount of carbon-14 that's left and the actual age, there's a period in the decay curve where it flattens. And so mm-hmm. something that you date falls onto that plateau, then all of a sudden you have this problem of it can wander by, I think, almost like a thousand years of how old that object is. Yeah. And so it's kind of one of those things where I just wonder if there are... Some error bars we don't know about? It seems entirely plausible that there's some error bars that we don't know about. And so whenever people, whenever we ever, ever talk about timing, I always have in the back of my mind where I'm like, well, timelines do shift. Yes. Indeed, in Chinese archaeology, uh, there is a major chronological uh, shift over the last decade. Like something like this uh, would be considered uh, like 2600 BC. And then the more recent precise dating bring everything down a little bit. So kind of shaved off two, three hundred years mm-hmm. from the uh, radiocarbon dating of the 80s and 90s. But uh, it br- basically bring this into the moment of the first the dynasty uh, emerge. But since everything else, every space has been taken, it's hard to accommodate a change of that scale. You know what I mean? It's like every century after this to like the Omec era, every century somebody has been, uh, some culture has been accounted for. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have to collapse time, uh, we need to construct a new narrative of how things align with each other. Yeah, yeah, I'm not so sure about the collapsed. I mean, maybe I don't know so much about that, but the idea, like this, that piece that you're showing on the screen right now, is clearly. It seems like it's taken from somewhere else and stuck into this wall. And you saw that with yes. the really Mesoamerican looking one as well. Yes. And I, it just seems to me like, like, where is that? It's just seems. Yeah, yeah. It just seems to me like these people are pointing at something, and maybe the entire Mesoamerican aesthetic was built from a found piece too or a distant memory of of, of some city that but none we're of talking us are, about like a millennium of time but we just talked about a millennium of time at the beginning of this talk where these uh are the seals the seals right so this is a thing that happens the jade also right Tra- like the the form of the use of the jade may have changed it lost its iconography but the the basic object remained in place somehow that is very tantalizing I don't know. I'm just I'm losing my mind over this because it's just oh. <laughs> it's so it's so American looking. And I don't. I mean, yes. it's so Mexican looking. It's crazy. Yeah. Yes. And here uh, on the lower left corner, you can see a tiger or something like that upside down. Because they they, they are indeed <laughs> out of sequence. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. from somewhere else. That's but what souvenir. kind of a temple it was is really hard to tell. Uh, let me show you the rest of the images. Mm. Well, like I always think about, you know, some of the most trafficked temples in ancient Greece are have like one column left, right? Because people mm-hmm. took all the pieces to make their new temples or to make their new cities. It's just a very yeah. common thing that I think archaeology has a rough time with because 
cities get, they don't just get abandoned, they get abandoned and then pillaged for all of their useful materials, which is probably all of the beautiful stonework, like the nicest stone is going to be on top if you want to rework that, all of the metal, it's yes. all going to get carted off and used for something else. And I think that makes just hard archaeology, making a story just from these archaeological remains very difficult because that's such a small piece of what was. Yes, except in this area, there's nothing before and not much after. That's the problem. You know, in, in the Central Plains, you see recycling and things like that. It can gradually decipher, you know, which come from where. And in this area, it's like a bright star emerged and then disappeared. We don't know, you know, from which origin it could adopt this, except jade. The jade has this iconography uh, across China. Some I mean, kind of can I ask you a really crazy, ridiculous question? Um, yeah, sure. Is it why? Is, why are people? Why is there? Is it laughed away that the Mesoamericans could have had some seafaring component that could have gotten pieces, relics, iconography from the East and brought it back to Mesoamerica? Is it just because the, there's no genetic evidence for that? Is it because there's the navigation seems completely impossible? I think the classical period is too late. Well, but they could have retrieved these art artifacts from that from mainland from somewhere in the east and brought them back when the artifacts must have been in china for thousands of years so the the model it was like a dead civilization in china that had this common ancestor aesthetic right could that have been somehow taken okay so the model the model i think that you're proposing is that there is some kind of larger civilization that shimao is taking its building blocks from that everybody is kind of pillaging and some group goes to Mesoamerica with that iconography and then it just kind of like kicks around for a thousand years before it becomes the favorite iconography of the well, Mayan they, they wouldn't have necessarily had to take it at the time of, of that civilization's rise. They could have taken it later. Oh yeah, I guess that's possible, right? Because I mean, you can go to the Acropolis and you can buy like a little Acropolis figurine. Yeah. It'd be like, maybe it would just be some storied ancient civilization of some sort that was like the gods, you know, the pe the people of the gods, the chosen ones, the old people, something like that. That's an interesting idea. I guess I just, the way I see it is that m when you talk to people about the East, let's say, uh, Asian to Mesoamerican connections, they'll say, well, there's no genetic evidence for that, which is fair enough. But, or if there is, it dates back for tens, 20,000 years. But the transmission of aesthetics doesn't necessarily have to mean people are reproducing, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just having a hard time believing that people are just licking toads and seeing the exact same artwork. It's just very, very, it's, it might be true. I just, it's very hard for me to believe, you know, I, I probably just don't have enough experience licking toads. I need to. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm not drawing that exact uh, uh, connection um, because there's a lot more going on. Let me show you where the toad. Yeah, that, that's the toad. So these are some of the earliest metal pieces mm. that's dating to this era. Okay, so this is from uh, uh, there's a two cities, Shimao in the north, Taosu in the south, in the basin. And in Taosu, you, you see these. 
uh, almost looks like a circular saw or something. It's crazy. Like a yeah, gear. that one is uh, uh, attached to a jade disc. Mm -hmm. So so where in the arm? But in Iran, you have these notched discs. Discs, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that. Yeah, I think this is pretty much it. Um, here's a Lushan Mao site, south of Shimao, a smaller counterpart, hilltop fortresses. Again, with these jades embedded in its walls. And here's an heirloom uh, jade cylinder from Liangzhou. So, so it's going all the way up here from, wow. from this area. And this is what I mean by coral shells. So this particular tent is probably for a chief. It has dozens of tiger skin and leopard skin to make it. And coral shells is attached for protection like an amulet that and almost looks like uh african yes yes so but these car shells will come from the same source from maldives this traded in multiple directions so these are not from china coast they came from the north and when the great wall was built then inside the great wall people don't use car shell anymore north of the great wall the the hunter gatherer societies always like the Mongolians they always had coral shells, and this period of Shimao is the first time a coral shell started to show up in China. They go from the west to the east. Mm. So, and the this picture on the right top is taken from a Hershey corridor over here is a jade mine, is outside of the Dunhuang Oasis. It looked like a surface of the moon, but even such distant places has been prospected 4,000 years ago. So, so this is the, the great period of exploration, you know, uh, a jade prospector, um, copper prospector, they all tried figuring out these landscape. Um, as to, oh, here, you, you might have the beginning of Chinese writing. Mm -hmm. at this moment so as to the similarities i think it's hard to establish a narrative with those artistic representations for example in the past we we can't believe these spears look so simple we can't establish a link with Siberia, okay? Like how many ways you can make a spear? Why <laughs> was a hook? But now when we have everything in place, it's undeniable that this horde of spears, these top two pictures came from Siberia, from Altai. This, is the, this one is from Altai. They showed up in the central China. So this is close to turquoise mines and copper mines and this is also the area where these double loop amphora reached in its distribution it goes all the way from the upper yellow river uh, eastern tibetan plateau to middle yangs so what i think in your case is uh let's see let's stop share did i stop share already Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Now it's back. <laughs> okay. Stop shit. <laughs> there you go. Okay. 
What I think in your case, in terms of uh, uh, trans-Pacific uh, connections, would be we should look at configuration of evidence. So not a single line of evidence, but multiple lines of evidence that has certain configuration. Okay, so this is almost like the difference between vocabulary versus grammar. You know, vocabulary, it, you can go by accents like mama or papa. You don't have to have a single link. Uh, but it is very important to have a configura configuration of multiple lines of evidence to establish when and where this took place. Yeah, it's almost impossible to even imagine a hypothesis otherwise. Like I'm having a hard time just even, even if I let myself go and try to just fill in the gaps with my wildest imagination for what could have happened, you know, abandoning all evidence, it's very hard to come up with something that makes sense, which is why it's so troubling to me. It's like... But there does seem to be ample evidence for these shamanistic, artistic cultures that were making lots of stuff. And that's, I think, what's most interesting here, which is that ancient history tends to be, in my interpretation, a story of very simple people eventually coming together to create more and more complex cultures. And then you have, you know, the, the gradual rise of everything that we come to know is civilization. But when you have these networks of exchange and you have these settlements that are so difficult to build and clearly housed a lot of people that are filled with artifacts, not just of manufacturing and trade, but also of beauty and culture, it suggests that the roots of, of modernity are much deeper than we tend to think of them. And the difficulty of finding these sites suggests that it's possible that there was something earlier, but without concrete evidence, we can't reconstruct that picture. Because without something in hand that you can point to and you can say, look, this piece is here, this piece is there, this piece is, this is over here. There's, there's not a story to tell, there's just speculation. And I think that this is the tension between the people like Graham Hancock, who tell this fantastical story of, you know, the Atlanteans or whatever, versus the academic community, because the academic community wants the evidence. They want to be able to say, okay, these are the artifacts, this is the context in which they're connected. And without that, all we have is speculation, which is perhaps interesting because we were talking to this guy, Samo Buria, and he was saying that it would be really interesting for more people to spend time searching in specific areas for ancient civilizations or cities that were triangulated from the texts of the time. Where he's like, the only city that I can think of that somebody really went and intentionally found in, say, ancient European agriculture or archaeology is Troy. Where somebody was like, I think Troy is here. I'm going to go there and I'm going to dig it up. And he did. And so Samo's like, there's probably other places like that. But we have a tendency of stumbling upon our discoveries of cities rather than 
being able to triangulate where they must be and then going there and starting a shovel-ready project. But you have to have a hypothesis to do that. And I'm having trouble even constructing a hypothesis for this place that Shimao took this facade from. Well, there's no writing. Right? Yeah. So it's... Um, let me show you what comes before that mm -hmm. and to see whether uh, there's a chance of... Uh, Let's see. Can you see mm -hmm. the cylinder? Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is the Liangzhu. And here's the core area in Shanghai area, lower Yangzi. And it's a massive mound. This mound is uh, 30 hectares in size and 10 meter tall. And then... Um, it's elite buried with the cylinders, and Kisi Chang was very excited about this. I think this is like the portable access Monday. Okay, the the, access, the, the channel of religious communication. Um, as I said uh, earlier, that uh, in Bronze Age, late Bronze Age ritual texts, these were used to pay homage to Earth. But we don't know uh, whether that idea can go back to mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago. But on these jade, you have this kind of relief carving. So uh, we think that the small kind of iconography could come from this diaspora situation that jade, you know, come from these forms, even techniques or artisans. Uh, this is the climatic change I was talking about. The, mm. the yellow, this end is 10,000 years ago. So the, these are proxy data coming from the caves in southern China that show 50-year uh, resolution rainfall. And he, to the left is modern time, and to the right is 10,000 years ago. The yellow bars represent periods of climatic anomaly. And you can see the middle 4,000 years ago, this period is most violent and, and longest, five century long, extended drought and major reversal. And then this happened several times. You can see drought and flooding, um, boats take place. So yeah, this is in terms of Chinese jade, we can't envision where that come from. So here are, are the, the jade you've you discovered in Southern China, eagle standing on the top, and then if you fit that toad into that cavity in the middle, it fit right in. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of a religious thing yeah, is yeah, going yeah. on. And then the jade carving is very sophisticated. So, oh, this is the vessels I'm speaking about. So these are Iranian and these are the early Chinese ones. Mm -hmm. Do you see that chimney, that bound looking design? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and this one. So. Yeah. And even so these are the forms of major ritual vessels. Does the eagle show up before this? Is the eagle not figure much. prominently? No, not much. Is, not much. It, are eagles indigenous to the area? Mm, eagles. I think so. Yes. Okay. I, they seem like they would be a step. I always associate them with the step hunters. Yes. Yes. But uh, in this area, they could be present, yeah. Mm.
And also you see that bone, that bone piece on the right corner. Mm -hmm. That is a jaw of blue. Um, the shamans are, are often play this. Mm -hmm. and it looks like a T-Rex on the bottom left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I just can't see it. I think it's, an, I think it's the ego. Oh, it's the ego. I, was, I was in a different picture Yeah, it's the, the ego. So those, those stone walls on the terrace mound, um, when I put my hand in it, you, you, you see the cold wind going. So it's not solid, as if there's a lot of cavity. Mm. And then if you stand in the plaza and it, you, you yell toward it or sing toward it, it, it feels like an amphitheater. Mm. It echoes. So this whole structure itself could be uh, some kind of uh, shamanistic uh, structure. I mean, it's so scary to think of a place that is so developed to just wink out, like a, like you said, it was this bright star that just goes out. Yes, yes, and that's that's the the challenge of Chinese archaeology. Um, but all, 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 sometimes when you look at history of archaeology, a lot of cities are stumbled upon. Um, but uh, as I said earlier, all the major discoveries now, the site has handed out calling cards 100 years ago, often in the forms of uh, jade, like jade pits. Like Sanxingdui was like that, you know, the, the ones with bronze, huge bronze mass with eyes sticking out. And Liangzhu uh, was like that. So it's very difficult for these massive cities to remain invisible. Even the archaeologists miss them. Uh, the, the farmers would dig into them and the, the jay would come out of it. Mm. So often, because it's just by sheer scale, it's very difficult for them to, to remain untouched, given today's scale of uh, earth-moving construction like that. Yeah, what is, so what is the future of Chinese archaeology? Are there hypothesis-driven efforts, or is it mostly just wait for the farmers to stumble across something? What's, uh, you know, what's going yeah. on over there right now? Um, it's a very interesting and unusual moment in Chinese archaeology today. Uh, in the past, it often kind of uh, remained on the margin of state affairs. For example, during Cultural Revolution, um, historians, uh, all the, the people in humanities and social sciences are somewhat entangled in it sometimes in a negative way they they later their discipline kind of paid a price for it for example the the discipline of history and a lot of effort or in, invested in proving marxist uh, doctrines mm -hmm. like um peasant revolution and uh, matrilineal society and things like that. But in general, 
archaeologists stayed away from politics. But currently, the national leader is she. He's very, very interested in archaeology, hmm. and that would kind of come as a the, the, the kind of double-edged sword. That is, you get a lot of attention, a lot of investment, and huge、uh, funding for you know archaeological research.、Uh, but on the other hand,、um, it. Ideas not as diverse anymore, because it became part of a state agenda. So I think you have a situation this of this unusual attention to archaeology that could come with string attached.、Um, for example, the Polybaro had two workshops on the origin of Chinese civilization already, like. All the national leaders will sit there, have a workshop like this, over an hour or two on current research of China. But you know, again, you would your research somehow fit with a, a scheme. The scheme is、uh, a unity of diversity、mm. of Chinese civilization. That is how. Different trajectories, the heterogeneous traditions, all contribute to something、mm. of Chinese civilization. So it's like almost if you,、uh, you know, maybe take the narrative with a grain of salt, but look at the evidence. It, it seems good that the state would be putting a lot of money into archaeology because at least you have the generation of new evidence or the unearthing of new evidence, and then maybe the rest of the world can negotiate the narrative that. Is constrained within. Yes, that's a a positive way to look at it. Yeah,、uh, <laughs> and you know, most archaeologists are taking advantage of this time、uh, to generate、uh, excellent research with fundings we cannot imagine here in North、mm-hmm. America.、Um, but on the on the other hand, some of the interpretations look again very dogmatic.、Uh, so. So we're not very pleased with that, but again, nobody prevented us from offering our own views. So I'm generally happy with the situation, despite the lack of overall attention to the well-being of the society. You know, do you、so、have more anomaly in that case? Do you have more trips planned for fieldwork? Yes, I'm going there、uh, later in August. Yes. What do you plan to work on? I'm very interested in this idea of the Odyssey of the Great Flood Controller because、um, because he, the the scope of this journey you can you can just think about it as a feather serpent you know where he was disposed from his city. Things at Tula, and then he traveled around. And in many of these post-classical Mayan cities, the the lords of these city-states declare themselves as the children of the feather serpent, where he he visited. And then、uh, many cities were built in the image of his original capital. So that's the Chinese, very similar to Chinese story. So I suspect. 
this great flood control story was some kind of a religious movement or emerging religious network designed to collect and systematize and perform the landscape. So you basically chant the landscape, you reenact the ritual tour to harness the powers of the landscape in order to counter the violence coming out of the landscape due to the climatic change. So basically the climatic change unleashed the extraordinary destruction to Neolithic societies that's already very familiar with routines. And all those routines were destructed by this very violent landscape. And this is the period when suddenly new ritual centers emerge, like Shimao and Taosu. And then they have their jade forms, like that jade blaze that you see at Shimao. And, and this develop a religious tradition that also has political implications. Okay, so uh, that is these landscapes are performable, are controllable. And then at this era, I suspect there's a no bureaucracy. The aim of accumulating that, that knowledge is in order to ritually perform it, to engage it within it. And all the pilgrimage activities take place at where the rivers cut through the mountain. Mm. So that's the place of religious efficacy. They will say, this place called Dragon Gate, the great flood controller cut it himself. Across China, there are sacred places like this. Many has been later appropriated, like the famous Dragon Gate. It became a place of Buddhism. You see the, 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 this carving right behind me, this rubbing? That's a rubbing from a royal pilgrimage mm. to these grottoes carved on the cliff of the Dragon Gate. But why? Well, because these places are already secret. It's connected with the flood control. So you basically see different religions riding over these places, this like Jerusalem. So when you look at the deep layer, is the flood controller's journey is the one that defines the framework of Chinese civilization. And everything is coming from it. And then in the 19th century, sorry, in the beginning of 20th century, modern scholars rejected that narrative. It's just like European historians rejected Choi. And they say that narrative was created by the warring states, kings, right before the rise of the empire to justify a unified China, okay? But now more and more evidence shows China 4,000 years ago is a period of extraordinary change and a period of emergence of extraordinary religious network. 
So that means we have to revisit uh, these stories and uh, think about these stories in a, in a big scope. So what I've been doing over the last few years is to trace these secret sites, especially at places where river cuts through the mountains and to, to look at connectivity. I think much of this old inspiration to research like uh, Timpocatite work on Cahokia, its connection with Mesoamerican civilizations and its connection with environmental changes. So my generation of scholars of Michigan connection are thinking of the interface between nature and culture. Mm, I love yeah. that. That's so, beautiful. Uh, yeah, that, that's something I, I'm very interested in, this deep layer. And related to that is the work of uh, uh, Grenet. He was the student of a great sinologist, Shawan, in the 1910s, and also great sociologist, Durkheim. So Grenet is the student of both. And he's also a good friend with Marshall Malls. Maus is a great uh, anthropologist. He's a nephew of Durkheim. So in the early 20s, so these people are kind of laying the foundations of uh, sociology, sinology, and anthropology. Maus, sorry, uh, Gournay has this very interesting idea of the journal, journal, uh, the journey of the flood controller. He argued that the particular text describing that journey, okay, is like a tribute list and travel itinerary. It has been treated as a secret text by Confucian scholar and then was debunked in the early 20th century for imperial fabrication. And he said that text is probably very old even though it has been modified and corrupted, it probably represents the script for village shaman to perform the landscape for healing. So that performance is still preserved in Taoism and even Japanese uh, martial art, they incorporate that movement, okay? But nobody took his idea seriously because the scope is too grand. It, it looked totally imperial. So that's why nobody takes him. But he has a very interesting idea. That is, he thinks that performance came from prehistorical religious era. And once it enters historical tradition, the Confucian scholars incorporated the ideas of the uh, bureaucracy and the kingship out of it. And then religious Taoists took the esoteric part. So you'll basically see a more universal prehistorical religion, and then you'll see a divergence. Mm. The esoteric and for body performing and healing, that was done by religious Taoists. And then the Confucian scholars took the part about governance, about control, about tribules, about legitimacy. So 
Now I'm going back and I say, look, this is not something village shaman can have such vision. It must, for someone to have this vision put together, it has to be systematic. So what will be the right moment to do this, this mapping of the Chinese universe? Of course, the early imperial one will be good, but now the evidence seems to show the text was too old for it. It has a very archaic grammar. It has very archaic geography. And the most interesting thing is now you can tell. So originally, the tribute routes going to the center like this, okay, to, to this like spokes. But if you follow the, the order of geography, is naming these landmarks, you will realize it's going like two circles. Hmm. And these two circles intersect at a waterfall of a yellow river. So bureaucracy do not like double loops, <laughs> do not like waterfalls. Bureaucracy like hierarchies, control. So what I'm saying is this text, it has two spatial orders. One is everything coming to Rome. Okay, so that's what bureaucracy like. Yet there's another spatial order that's very performative, like this. So which make this text very distinctive because in later society, ritual performance and these centralized vision of governance, they are incompatible. But in this one, it is seamlessly merged together. So what I suspect is this thing, it has its roots in this era, in this era of extraordinary change. And there are people are putting these geographic knowledge together. It's beginning of metal prospecting. Remember the nine bronze vessel story? And all these are happening at this time. And this time has extraordinary large knowledge networks because it's connecting with the rest of Eurasia. And then people are using this knowledge in a very esoteric way. It's a very archaic way. They are performing it. They, they, they are ma making sacrifice with animals and jades. And then eventually by the Warring States period, the esoteric knowledge is already obsolete. Okay. And all those kings are interested in the administrative part. So, okay, let's forget about that. That Let's do this. And so basically, empire was mapped on to a prehistoric religion. And that religion was developed at a moment when China has the first encounter with people having metallurgic knowledge. Because if you're familiar with uh, Neolithic society mentality, you don't see the mountains through the lens of copper mines. You know, you see these uh, landscapes through the eyes of jade, animals. So that change to Bronze Age, it, it requires a new mindset. 
you see certain areas being rich in copper and you want to control those areas. So the whole configuration of political landscape, economic landscape, is all changed with the arrival of this new metal. And also, if you're familiar with a Neolithic mentality, you know, the uh, lacquer is very thin, very shiny. Pottery, the best pottery looks just like lacquer, very thin, very shiny. But none of them are water uh, fire resistance. If you, if you fire these lacquer, they would crumble. And then the thin, thin pottery, if you put something hot in it, it will shatter. But once you make bronze out of it, it's like an urban spectacle. Mm. Because it's shiny. It is created with a fluid, you know, from the mountain, copper ore, you melt it. The entire Neolithic mind is shattered, challenged by this. And it, it makes sound you have never heard before. And it's heat resistant. And it even grow patina like turquoise, which was very popular at this time. So the whole thing is almost like alive. And even you break it, you can melt it down and recast it. To Neolithic people, these are all like magic. So this is the kind of thing I try to research is how do we capture this magical moment where the psychedelic is almost like a catalyst to, to develop a new vision of civilization. So those substances is only one part of the thing and metallurgy is another one you know cattle became the prime for um animal sacrifice and also shoulder blades of cattle became used for arcobone this is mm. the same the same time neolithic chinese people don't do that so every component of bronze age chinese civilization come from this moment and this moment you know is like making a new world, world making and place making uh, and also senses is all coming together. So we have to capture its magic. Mm -hmm. It kind of sounds like Silicon Valley or something like that. It's you know, like, the, like that, yes. You know, because like Berkeley years is kind of, yes. that area is known for psychedelics and all of these crazy new ideas and everything. And, uh, yeah, yes, you know, it's not. So yes, hard. I heard uh, that that Jobs, you know, he 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 he's he liked the acid perfection, you know, <laughs> come from right. these missions. But I yeah. think that this kind of big picture perspective is necessary to be able to really say something about the human condition, because we have this tendency of looking at things in isolation. But yes. the the relationship to the landscape as it changes when you realize that what you can do with the landscape is different and the way that ideas stick in the mind and the the application of that culture downstream of people's ardent adoption of it are all features that have conspired to create the world that we live in today. And I feel like we can't understand the modern moment without understanding the ways in which we have traversed this kind of terrain in the past. Yes. Be because all the same problems 
are here again. And we look into the past and we're like, huh, they didn't make it through that. That's weird. I'm sure we will, though. And so having a better sense of why it was they didn't make it through it, I think, is maybe the most urgent and pressing question for our time, because it really does seem to bear very strongly on our ability to make it through our own moment of terrible climate change and cultural shift and geopolitical wrangling and everything else. And so... Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy too. I mean, there's so much. There's so much that's left here. I, I hope that you'll come back and tell us about the development of your research and what you find in August when you go, because these are questions that we spend a lot of time thinking about, and and clearly, clearly you do as well. Yes, thank you. It was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I gotta say, I have more questions than when I started, which <laughs> is actually really good. So I will, I will be reading in in the ne- in the coming months and year and uh yeah i hope that we can talk to you again down the road sure It'd be fantastic. Sure. thank you it has been a great pleasure talking to you your your questions are really insightful thank yeah. you so much all right thank lehman you. have a great rest of your day sir thank you you so too much. yes thank you